Hello and welcome to the Friday, June 26, 2020, end of the fiscal year edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, let the debates begin and Donald's demise. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper State House Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, and, and happy FY21 to all of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Todd. Where will you guys be counting it down? <laughs> I'll be in the LSA office, uh, you know, with all the fiscal analysts. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's black wow. You That's a black tie affair. In Dave Roeder's undisclosed location, <laughs> somewhere beneath the capital, the state capital, yeah. Well, first up, let the debates begin. Senator Joni Ernst threw the first jab in what's likely to be a 10-round cage match over debates in her U.S. Senate race against Democrat Teresa Greenfield. Ernst called for six debates, two each in August, September, and October. In doing so, she opened herself up to the suggestion that it's the weaker candidate who asks for debates. Typically, it's challengers, not incumbents, who call for debates. Recent polls that show Ernst trailing Greenfield seem to support that theory. Um, Todd, does this just show how jaded we are as voters or or perhaps just reporters that a candidate who suggests something that seems like it ought to be a given in a political campaign is, is immediately abused for making that suggestion? Yeah, we we are jaded. It's true. And, uh, you know, I looked at this question and I realized I was going to have to deploy the the uh, age old opinion writer uh, on, on one hand, but on the other hand model. <laughs> so both hands washed, thoroughly washed. Uh, but, you know, it is true when 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 a candidate, usually the candidate that's asking for a slew of debates is the candidate that needs those debates to sort of, you know, make something good happen or to or to trip up a, 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 a challenger that's running ahead. Uh, usually the, the person that's ahead wants to limit those sort of uh, engagements so that they can, you know, hold their lead and not make mistakes. Uh, so I think that there, that is one aspect of it. On the other hand, you've got the Ernst camp probably thinking, well, we've got a candidate who served a term in the U.S. Senate who uh, delivered a response to the State of the Union address that spoke on the floor of the Republican National Convention, a speech that was supposed to be in prime time if, if Michael Flynn would have shut up, but he didn't. <laughs> so Ernst got pushed out of prime time. You know, Flynn talking got him into trouble in the long run, so he might have thought about that. Uh, but, you know, so she's she's been in debate. She's been on big stages. She's been in the Senate. She's, you know, so they probably figure that in these kind of without a net engagements that, Ernst will do really well against Greenfield, who has not had that kind of experience and and who, you know, just just has, doesn't have the political chops yet, perhaps to 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 match up well with with Ernst. So I think they may also be coming. It's a position of weakness to be behind in the polls, but it's also, I think, a position of strength for Ernst uh, having the experience she has on, on on the national stage and on debate stages. So I think they, they see this as a place where they could maybe erase Greenfield's early advantage. It's going to be interesting if they do, do debates, whether they'll be in person or not. Um, 
you know, <laughs> because I was thinking about how part of the debate process is, you know, the, the negotiations, can they have notes? Can they have a, you know, a notepad to write things down, all that, you know, if they're doing this virtually and they're sitting in front of a computer screen, it's going to be hard to say, you can't have notes. Uh, <laughs> there's not going to be any way, way to monitor, uh, you know, whether they're reading from their position papers and those sorts of things. Hey, James, I wanted to ask you, um, because one of the things that you heard out of the Republicans uh, as this story unfolded was part of the reason, too, that they thought this was a good idea for Ernst was because they thought Greenfield was not a good debater during the primaries. And and to be perfectly Mm -hmm. honest, I I, I didn't pay as close attention to those during the primary. You kind of covered that stuff more than I did. So I was curious what you thought about that. Well, I, I would say that I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't impressed that she was a great debater. Um, and I think sort of what Todd was alluding to is she doesn't have the political chops yet. Uh, her answers seemed very rote. Um, and I mean, you know, it's one thing to stick to your talking points. It's another thing if you don't have anything but your talking points. And I, I think that's, you know, that's kind of where my assessment of where Teresa Greenfield is that it's she hasn't had that experience. Um, so she's, you know, she's going to stick to her talking points, you know, which those are the points you want to make. Um, when you get into a debate, if you don't know necessarily know the questions that are coming, if you don't know, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, a more experienced candidate is going to throw at you. I, I think it remains to be seen how quickly uh, Teresa Greenfield can uh, step up to that. She, she may do fine. You know, we don't know. Um, I mean, certainly she's someone who has been out there, uh, you know, for the past several months uh, talking to voters and she has experience in the business world that, you know, you, I would think would also prepare her for this sort of a thing. But um, yeah, I, I think part of uh, the Republican strategy or the earned strategy here is, an, you know, an inexperienced candidate. So having more debates probably helps uh, Senator Ernst, who is more experienced with those things, as Todd was saying. Um, you know, uh, we won't know until it happens, I guess. Yeah. One, of the, one of the arguments or lines of attack that uh, the Greenfield campaign um, has taken is, is this idea that Joni Ernst is the third least popular senator, um, you know, out of the 100 U.S. senators. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, a popularity rating of U.S. senators is all that meaningful. But um, in addition to the previously mentioned uh, public policy polling in Des Moines Register, Iowa poll, other polls have shown Ernst's uh, disapproval rating uh, is higher than her approval rating. Uh, the popularity poll uh, that people refer to, Morning Consult, uh, found that the most popular senator based on approval minus disapproval is Senator Kent Kramer of North Dakota with a 47% approval rating versus a 35% disapproval rating. And the senators with the highest approval ratings tend to be longtime senators from what we would call essentially one party states, such as Bernie Sanders from Vermont. On the other hand, Dick Durbin over in Illinois is at 37% like Ernst and Kamala Harris is at just 41%. Neither appear to be in danger of losing if they run for re-election. In fact, one of them could be the next vice president. Sorry, Dick, don't start packing yet. Um, <laughs> so, so, Amy, uh, this popularity thing, does it matter? Is this a, going to be a popularity contest? 
Well, isn't it always a popularity contest? I mean, you know, how you are perceived, it, it really affects people. And I think we all saw this back in the presidential, um, you know, candidate appearances when we talked to people about, you know, why you're supporting this candidate or why you come out. Invariably, about a third of the time, I would also hear something about Joni Ernst. We've also got to get Joni Ernst out. And of course, this is at Democratic candidate events, but it was really interesting in a race that obviously doesn't involve the Senate to hear her name thrown out all the time. So I think that was on people's minds, um, just that that sort of vitriol that they they had for her for one reason or another. So so that was always interesting to me to hear. And then, of course, the morning console poll, which came out in uh, January, I believe, and uh, possibly has been updated since then. But I know that, you know, she's right up there with, like you said, um, those senators, as well as Susan Collins of Maine, who's got a tough re-election fight. Mitch McConnell, obviously, who's got a tough re-election fight. Um, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting. I think what she has to overcome is whether people like Teresa Greenfield more. And I don't know if they do, um, if there's been polling on Teresa Greenfield's um, approval or disapproval. You know, you can't do that when they're not in office, but can you go how do you feel about her versus Ernst and, and those polls are starting to come back and it's of course it's a popularity contest. What did Leslie Nope say in Parks and Rec? It's a beauty contest for ugly people. <laughs> Politics exactly. is you know, yeah, yeah it, it is all about your approval and your popularity for sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, research that has shown that people are looking for a candidate they like. And, you know, I mean, that's another way of saying popularity, I guess. Um, and so, you know, do you like Teresa Greenfield more than you like Joni Ernst? Or, or, and, I, uh, you know, one of the things uh, about this race is we have a candidate, Joni Ernst, who's been there six years, um, you know, is sort of well-defined, I guess we would say, where Teresa Greenfield is relatively new on the scene, hasn't been on the ticket before. So she's not well known. And, and Republicans uh, have suggested that these polls that show Greenfield leading may be her high point and it'll be downhill from here as voters get to know her. Um, and Ernst's challenge is, you know, defining uh, Teresa Greenfield. So, uh, Aaron, um, how are they doing on that, on defining Teresa Greenfield as, as somebody that Iowans won't like? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, the strategy out of the gate, anyways, has been for Republicans to try to turn Greenfield's uh, resume on her ear. Um, she has run as a businesswoman, um, someone who's uh, been involved with uh, myriad businesses, you know, you know, run, run a business, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so the Republican attack line from the start has been to challenge her record as a businesswoman. They've pointed to a couple of instances where she was involved in a real estate company um, uh, that uh, in one case um, was part of a renovation project that uh, forced some businesses to have to relocate, uh, which fun, fun. Don't say eviction. I was just going to say fun side note for us as journalists. We've gotten in the um, crosshairs of a, of a battle over the word eviction. Uh, so that's been great. Um, and, and another um, example of one of her businesses that uh, faced a number of lawsuits. Um, it's one of those things you look into the, at it a little closer and most of the lawsuits were um, not successful. So um it's one of those things that requires 
more than just its uh, face viewing. <laughs> of course, how many voters actually do that when they see uh, an ad? So it may be effective anyways. Uh, but, the, but the point being, again, that that has been the Republican uh, line of attack at this point anyways, early in the race is to, to say, okay, you claim to be a businesswoman, but let's take a closer look at your actual business record. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that moves the needle in any way, if, if, if that affects, there's the, the ads are out there. Um, so people are, are seeing these ads and these challenges to uh, Teresa Greenfield's record. So, um, you know, we'll find out in the coming weeks and as we get more polling on the race to see if that's having an impact or moving the needle. One of the things that has struck me about this race so far is that, I mean, it's really early in the race and it seems like they're already uh, firing some pretty heavy shots at each other. And it's like, okay, what are we going to be seeing in September and October? Uh, James Lynch, you just spoiler alerted my weekend political column. Oh, well, you'll want to read more about that in in, in Murphy's Musings this weekend. Uh, <laughs> Great minds, uh, right? What's that? Great minds, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, Todd, um, Joni Ernst was first to call for debates. What's next for her? Um, do you think she'll be asking for editorial board meetings? Well, she will be invited and is obviously always welcome at the Gazette editorial board to take questions about issues of the day. So we hope she does show up now. If you're asking me to place some sort of monetary bet of any significant size, I'm probably going to be reluctant to do that. But we're hope springs eternal. Maybe she hasn't visited us since the spring of 2014. So it's been six years. We've got a lot to catch up on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might be a long meeting. <laughs> <laughs> where it might be very short. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Well, moving right along here, let's talk about uh, Donald Trump. I mean, if Ernst's polling numbers are bad, I don't know how to describe the president's. Uh, poll after poll in recent weeks has shown him trailing former Vice President Joe Biden by as much as 10 points, 10 percentage points. Uh, buoyed by that news, Biden emerged from his windowless basement and saw his shadow this week, which I believe means we're in for four more months of campaigning. Um, it's, it's pretty well accepted that Trump didn't think he would win in 2016, and supposedly he had a plan to self-isolate at his golf resort in Scotland after the election. Um, and now some people are asking whether he's intentionally trying to lose uh, Todd, is it possible that Trump has grown tired of winning? Well, I, you know, I keep reading that he thrives his, 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 you know, campaign in the past and his presidency sort of thrives on chaos. And so, uh, you know, by all measure, his campaign should be thriving. The polls suggest otherwise, you know, there's, there's that point though, where you get too much chaos and, and people start thinking, about you know where are the soft spots along the Canadian border and where are the refugee camps going to be located because things are going sort of south and uh, or I guess north in that case <laughs> why I said south but you know the, the pandemic is not under control in fact in places like Florida and Texas things are getting pretty bad hospital beds are filling up again the numbers look really bad and even 
I mean, in Iowa today, we saw, you know, almost 500 new cases, according to the, the 10 a.m. to 10 a.m. count, which I know uh, everybody's got their own times that they want to use to, to, to count the, the cases. But uh, so, yeah, there's a feeling that he failed to, to do what needed to be done on that uh, instead of sort of trying to unify the nation during this period of protests demanding racial justice, he has basically doubled down on on white grievance and is you know trying to you know uh, get his base riled up again. He sees that as his best chance for victory. But I, I just think all these things together, I think people are starting starting to sour of the brand. He's even starting to pull a little worse among sort of his strongest constituencies. I mean, even even white guys are starting to are starting to think about not voting for him, which is a, then, you know, he's in trouble if that's the case. So, uh, yeah, all of these things are, are coming together and the, the chaos is hurting him instead of helping him. Yeah, if you think about it, 2016, a lot of his support seemed to come from people who didn't like the way things were going. And, uh, you know, some of those people might be looking back fondly at 2015 and 2016. God. And yeah. if only he'd gotten to go golfing in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> we might all be better off. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, okay. we, we might also be in the, the third Hillary impeachment hearing. So, well, no, no doubt. I mean, who, know, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll take a break from impeachment to address COVID. Uh, no, never mind. Uh, Aaron, if you're a Republican running for re-election, say Joni Ernst or a GOP challenger like Ashley Hinson, Marionette Miller-Meeks or David Young, how excited are you going to be to campaign alongside Donald Trump if his poll numbers continue to tank? Um, so so I have two different answers to that question. Uh-oh. Uh, On the one hand. One is, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm using Todd's uh, method yeah. earlier. Uh, <laughs> If you're asking me if I'm a candidate, I'm a Repub- even if I'm a Republican running for re-election, uh, for all the reasons you and Todd just stated, it doesn't seem to be maybe the best idea in the world to, to hitch your flag to the president right now. But my the other part of my answer is I have seen no indication yet from Republican candidates in Iowa that they are shying away from that Um I've, I think they've been asked uh, or I've seen tweets uh, in support of the president in, in various capacities. Um, it doesn't seem like um, Iowa Republican candidates yet anyways are running from uh, from Donald Trump. Um, for better or worse, I'm not a political campaign operative. I, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. I, I like I said, for the based on the numbers we see and uh, the response to, to the way some of the national issues are being handled right now and the way people are viewing that, I, I, I would think there would be some cause for pause. I, I just don't see it yet, which I find uh, fascinating. And maybe they're smart to do that. Maybe maybe they're confident that, you know, this too shall pass and and eventually um, the economy will be on its way back and it'll be a good thing to be campaigning alongside Donald Trump. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm literally spitballing here, um, trying to come up with what the, the reason uh, might be for that. But at this point, I don't see any hesitance on the part of those candidates to, to appear alongside the president. Yeah, I mean, we've also seen stories about how people, um, 
I mean, they don't they don't say they're afraid of the president, but I mean, the the idea that if you said no, I don't want to campaign with the president, then maybe he starts tweeting about you in That's less than complimentary point. terms. Um, yeah. So you know, it, you're sort of darn if you do and darn if you don't, and and it might be better to you know be seen with that, your yep. fellow party member than to have that fellow party member. Uh, you know, trashing you on Twitter. So yeah, that's a really good point. It may be seen as the uh, the, the lesser of two evils. You'd rather just mm-hmm. kind of get, take a quick photo and be done with it and deal with that fallout versus you know have him actively you know working against you on uh, Twitter. And and there's still the, to whatever degree it still exists and is or sol- solid or or maybe shrinking a little bit. There is the the, the issue of his base supporters too. And if you uh, as a Republican candidate, if you upset those people, then that 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 hurts your chances too. There's that factor as well. Amy, do we get to a point where Republicans start to treat uh, the president like they treated Steve King? Uh, Republicans loved him until they didn't love him anymore. They groaned when he said something offensive and said, oh, that's Steve King being Steve King. But when he nearly lost a heavily Republican congressional district, then they said, mm, that's that's too much we're going to replace Steve King with somebody we like better. I, I mean, it seems unlikely that Trump will not be the 2020 GOP nominee, but are Republicans starting to think, hey, we got 200 judicial appointments. Let's, uh, you know, you know, let's take that and uh, start looking beyond him. What comes after Trump? You know, maybe. I think, you know, Aaron's right. I think we're we're sort of seeing on the one hand, on the other hand, um, it's it's very, very difficult I would think in a different way than it would be to oppose Steve King, to oppose uh, the de facto head of your party as president. Um, even, you know, in races where, um, you know, we've seen that his his candidate in a primary has lost. You see the other candidate, the other Republicans say, you know, it doesn't matter that Trump didn't pick me. I'm still going to support the president. You know, they, they have to. They, they're looking at the voters that put him there. These are still the same voters that they're attracting. And there's not I don't think a big, massive shift away from that base. That having been said, I think you're right that they're they're probably starting to pay attention to to the winds of of change and maybe not agree to uh, three appearances, maybe just agree to one appearance or maybe thank him for his endorsement, but not talk about him on the campaign trail. Um, maybe. I, I also think you got to look at, um, you know, Trump still is uh, the incumbent president. He still leads Biden in a big way in terms of uh, cash on hand, you know, fundraising money. He's still um, got four months to the election, five months the election. I can't do math now. There's a lot of months until the election in which he could spin um, the coronavirus pandemic or the Black Lives Matter protest to his benefit. I mean, we're talking about um, at this time four years ago, Hillary Clinton led in the polls almost as much as uh, Joe Biden does now. And then in October, you know, sort of things happen to to change things. Now, the other caveat is people put Trump in office because they wanted change. They were tired of the status quo. Now Trump is the status quo. So do these people still get excited about things that he could possibly change now that he's been there for four years, that'll sort of be the interesting thing. I think the thing that I'm looking for is at what point does Mitch McConnell say, 
the president's going to drag the party down and we're going to lose the Senate. Oh um, God, never. I would know. put money on never. He would, he would not ever say that. When he well, gets out of office, maybe like John Boehner, he could, you know, start talking. <laughs> crap. Yeah, but, but I mean, he's, you know, he's a practical person, you know, and I mean, when at some point you look around and you say, okay, you know, we're going to lose the White House, but do we want to lose the Senate too? Um, mm. Joni Ernst, don't appear with the president. Cory Gardner, you know, yeah, you run your own campaign. Susan Collins, you know, telling those people, mm. hey, you've, you've got to, you know, you can't campaigning with the president we can't lose the you know because then you you lose basically a lot of the gains that republicans say they've made over the past four years um and, and i guess that's that's kind of my thinking is that they say look we, we got 200 judicial appointments we've changed the course of the judiciary for the next 20 40 years uh count our victories and uh figure out how to work with joe biden uh, that 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 probably is too simplistic. Um, well, yeah, and in theory, that should work, right? You can vote for Ernst and not vote for Trump, but in practice, people come out for that that top of the ticket vote and right. then just vote party all the way down. I think you still have to hitch your horse to Trump. Yeah, well, there. I mean, these candidates are in a. It's kind of a you can't you can't win with him, you can't win without him sort of situation. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. you look at Iowa, a congressional district. A Republican can't win a congressional district without sweeping all of the rural counties and doing it by a pretty good sized margin. Those are the places where Trump is the most popular. So you can't distance yourself from the president and win those counties. But then yeah. the problem is, do you lose all the suburban areas and all of the exurbs and all of, you know, the, 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 the smaller, the small towns of, of, you know, the county seat towns where there are yeah. some Democrats. I mean, mm-hmm. so yeah. I, and if Joni Ernst tried to distance herself from the president, nobody would believe it. I mean, she's, She's been, you know, so tight with him the entire time that, I mean, it would just, it would, it would look like a huge political, politically, you know, driven decision and it would alienate, it would alienate her supporters and not probably bring her much support from anyone else. So yeah, they're kind of stuck with him. I don't know. I don't know what they can do. I mean, and, you know, as Amy says, it's, it's, you know, it's early and, and who knows what will happen. And, there's a lot of campaign left and the presidential race will likely tighten up and we see national polls, but this is a state by state contest. So, you know, if he can eke out small wins in, in some of the states he did last time, he could win again. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to be it, right now. He looks like a liability, but he's a liability. They're just going to have to embrace and and hope for the best. Typically, the economy is is one of the most important issues, and that's the one area where Trump leads Biden in some of this polling, whether they go issue by issue. Uh, I think it's the only issue he leads on is is handling of the economy. So, you know, that may become more important uh, as the summer turns to fall. Um, And, uh, you know, so he may he may be able to hold on to uh, the presidency just based on handling of the economy, assuming the economy doesn't get worse um, before the election. (laughs) So there's a whole lot to talk about on future editions of On Iowa Politics. I hope this one was worth your time. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. Send fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. And you can find us on the homepages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. 
Jordan Sullivan will take us out. And if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Aaron, Amy, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well. Stop!